The following program is brought to you with support from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the fall election season is in full swing in South America. We'll check in on two important presidential races in Bolivia and Uruguay. But first, Gabriela Canchola is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Peruvian environmentalist Edwin Chota died this week. Some suspect he was killed by those pushing illegal development of the Amazon rainforest. Chota was a leader of the Shaninka indigenous community. Members of the tribal group found Chota's dismembered body, along with the remains of three other members of the tribe, in a remote area along Peru's border with Brazil. For years, Chota received death threats from those practicing illegal logging in the forest. Chota expressed his fears about the threats to the media last year. Our people have been threatened and shot at. We feel very unprotected by the Peruvian government. Illegal logging has stripped the Amazon of much of its cedar mahogany in Peru. Authorities say the area where Chota was fighting for stronger enforcement of environmental laws is the center of most of Peru's illegal logging. Latin America's largest nickel mine in Guatemala reopens after violent attempts to evict local indigenous groups. Tribal groups accuse the firm that owns the Phoenix mine with using strong-arm tactics to remove the local indigenous protesters from the region. Indigenous groups accuse local police of colluding with the mine's owner to clear land near the mine of its indigenous residents. They say the police burned houses and crops and used tear gas during the evictions. Indigenous groups filed lawsuits against the mine's owner for past intimidation tactics, including the gang rape of 11 women in 2007 and shooting incidents in 2009. Guatemala's president, Otto Perez Molina, has supported the redevelopment of the mine, which had been closed for 30 years. He called the mine the greatest investment in the history of the country. Venezuela's central bank says inflation in the country has soared to more than 63 percent annually. Those inflation figures are the highest in Latin America. President Nicolás Maduro blames anti-government protests earlier this year for further economic problems in the country. High crime rates and shortages of consumer goods spurred on much of the protests. Shortages of consumer goods have only worsened since the protests have subsided. Maduro's government has partially closed the country's border with Colombia, a source of black market consumer goods entering the country. Some international economic experts predict Venezuela's economic problems will only worsen, moving the country into a deep economic recession. Costa Rica has begun special reforms to its postal system. Currently, the system uses landmarks and directions instead of street names and numbers. The Inter-American Development Bank estimates the country loses $720 million a year in revenue due to lost or undelivered mail. The country's first official street signs went up in the capital, San Jose, only two years ago. Now the government is financing street signs throughout the country. This is Gabriela Canchola for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out goes to Ashburn, Virginia. 
the city with the most listeners tuned into us during the past week. Thanks for your support. And now we turn to Bolivia, where President Evo Morales will face the voters again next month. We asked Sinclair Thompson at New York University for his analysis of the presidential campaign. Thompson is the co-author of Revolutionary Horizons, Past and Present in Bolivian Politics. He joined us via Skype from New York. Polls are running uh, nearly 60% in favor of Morales. And he seems to be very comfortable. And he's trying to get out the vote uh, because he really thinks the more people who vote, the stronger his returns are going to be. He has a stands a very good chance of ultimately ending up with two-thirds majority in what's called the Plurinational Assembly, the equivalent of Congress, which would allow him to pass any kind of legislation without any problem. So uh, that would be that would be a significant factor in terms of the how successful the outcome is for him. But there's no doubt that he's going to win. Last poll I saw was from August, an Ipsos poll that that had Samuel Doria Medina as uh, the main contender from the National Unity Front. Uh, also, former President Jorge Curoga is uh, also running. Um, so no chance for either one of those contenders. Uh, the only chance of defeating Morales would be for all the other opposition parties to unite behind one candidate. There's been a lot of discussion and attempts to forge an alliance. They've not been successful. The party that Doria Medina founded and heads the National Unity Front, it's, it's more of a centrist uh, democratic third way, as, as some people would call it, more or less the type of uh, Democrat that a Bill Clinton might be. Evo Morales, more of a, a, a new left politician representing indigenous groups and, and others in, in Bolivia. Um, what makes him so popular that he's got 60% and may win on the first round? Yeah, the way the uh, panorama looks, people would characterize it in different ways, depending on how you see the government, and how you see the opposition. My own view is that the government is more of a center-left uh, position and that the Doria Medina front is more of a cent- center-right group. Um, I wouldn't put... Doria Medina is the equivalent of a a liberal or democratic uh, party. As for what accounts for Morales' popularity, I think, um, you know, there's the old saying, it's the economy, stupid. And it's hard not to get away from that. Uh, Right now, Bolivia is going through the biggest economic boom in its history. Uh, Morales and his party can take a little bit of credit for the current economic conditions, which are, are very beneficial. But most of the credit really just goes to uh, the international uh, commodities markets. The prices for the things that Bolivia has to export are very, very high. And Bolivia is raking in uh, a, an amount of money that's, that's unheard of um, in its history. So natural gas prices, um, prices for minerals, um, even agricultural commodities are are doing well. Soy that is produced in the Santa Cruz region, quinoa, which has become a kind of gourmet niche um, commodity in the United States, has led to a boom in agriculture in the most backwards part of the um, the countryside. So 
there are many, many ways in which international market conditions have been driving the the rise in revenue, which the state is then able to uh, redistribute in ways that have won it a great deal of popularity. So um, poorer sectors of the population are benefiting. There are programs for um, pregnant women, uh, for families who have kids in school. These are benefiting poorer sectors of the population. So the poverty rate has been coming down. Inequality rates have been coming down. They've set up a pension plan, which uh, has um, is benefiting people across the board. Nearly a million people have benefited. Uh, so there's there's substantial redistribution of the uh, wealth which has been coming in. The government can claim a little bit of credit for the the economic upturn, and that's because they raised the tax rate on foreign hydrocarbon firms, which before only had to pay about 18% of, of what they were earning. And uh, so now the state is, is taking in a higher uh, amount of royalties and so forth. So there are a lot of different economic indicators that we could talk about. Even the, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have praised Bolivia for its economic, prudent economic policies, macroeconomic performance. Uh, so this is surprising for people who think about the Bolivian government as being a kind of far left extremist government. In fact, uh, it's been... Uh, it's performed very well economically and received a great deal of um, uh, praise from mainstream economic institutions. So I think a big part of the popularity has to do with the strong economic performance of the country in the last, uh, in the last few years. Other reasons for popularity, um, the political conditions are now quite stable. Again, this goes against our notion about Insta political instability in the history of Bolivia, um, which is legendary. Um, and even in the past few years, from the time Morales, uh, actually from about 2000 up until 2009, there was a great deal of political conflict in the country. A lot of that has settled down now. The former uh, right-wing opposition to Morales is pretty much going along with things. So um, there isn't a lot of, um, uh, grounds for political opposition to, to attack the government. The, the political opposition doesn't have any coherent political program or economic program to offer in opposition, and, nor do they have a candidate who can stand up to Morales in terms of charisma or representing a new agenda. Maybe the other thing we could point to in terms of popularity is that Evo's profile as as someone of indigenous background um, is is really his, another historical innovation. The government has used a, a symbolism and discourse about indigenous peoples that has been unprecedented. So there's a way in which uh, there's a cachet associated with Evo Morales as a as a leader, which is exceptional. And I think continues to generate support for him, especially in the countryside and amongst the lower classes. There was some controversy about whether he should actually be standing for a third term. Uh, technically, legally, this is only his second term under the current constitution. But that argument never gained much traction in Bolivia. Mm. 
Yes, this is a, this has been a, a real point of dispute. Actually, Morales had said uh, back around um, 2008, 2009, that he would not run again for office because he was elected initially in 2005, and then he was reelected in 2009. So uh, he said he would only serve two terms in office initially. And that allowed the opposition to say, okay, we'll, we'll cut a deal and we will agree to a new constitution, which only allows for two terms in office. But once the new constitution was put into place, he then changed his uh, tune. And he said, no, actually, well, two terms, yes, but my term should only count from the time the new constitution was put in place in 2009. So there was a kind of a deception there, um, and he went back on his word. Uh, so, but he, nevertheless, he controls things like the constitutional court and electoral court who ruled in his favor and allowed him to run in, again in this election. So, uh, so even though technically I, you could argue that um, this is not legitimate, uh, in fact, he's gotten the, the institutional um, authorities to, to sanction this. The next question will be if he is reelected and he has two-thirds support in Congress, whether he will change the Constitution to allow for uh, no term limits. Well, this is some of the criticism that we hear of the charismatic new left leaders in Latin America, Correa and Ecuador, Chavez before he died in Venezuela, that um, they do come in with democratic principles, but eventually they get very comfortable with power and don't want to leave. It's not just left-wing leaders. It's uh, uh, Bloomberg in New York City did the same thing. It's it's a point of debate. Um, you know, there's the truth of the matter is that, like Chavez, Morales has run repeatedly in elections and repeatedly been uh, re-elected with large margins. So by certain standards, um, you could argue it's it's quite democratic. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a point of debate, obviously. What haven't we talked about that you think is important for our listeners to hear? Well, I think that there are, uh, there are contradictions um, in the... Um, in the country, in Bolivia, there are contradictions involving this government. There is um, uh, there that I think are good to be aware of. Uh, I mentioned that uh, this government has um, claimed to be a representative of indigenous peoples, and yet there are indigenous organizations in the country who felt betrayed by this government. Uh, who have, um, in fact, come uh, under repression from the government. Uh, much of this uh, surrounded the construction of a highway uh, in the Amazonian lowland region. The government has been trying to push forms of um, economic development that have been not sensitive to the territorial rights of indigenous peoples, that have not been sensitive to environmental concerns in ecologically sensitive parts of the country. Uh, so environmental groups as well as indigenous groups have had a lot to complain about with this government. Uh, the government has been has passed legislation and taken very interesting positions on environmental issues at the international level. Um, 
And yet, internally, the policies have not always been consistent with the progressive line that it has voiced um, in international arenas. So much of the economic development is based on the extraction of primary resources um, at the same time that the government talks about living in harmony with Mother Nature and uh, offering, uh, uh, advocating rights for Mother Nature in the face of capitalist development. So there, there are internal contradictions in terms of development policy and environmental policy and uh, indigenous rights that I think need to be um, seen as well. Thanks so much, Sinclair Thompson of New York University, the co-author of Revolutionary Horizons, Past and Present in Bolivian Politics. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Rick. Coming up, we'll head to Montevideo for an analysis of Uruguay's fall presidential race. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, New cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Re-election is not possible in Uruguay, but popular former president Tabari Vasquez is back leading the polls and representing the left-wing broad front, or the Frente Amplio, after sitting out a term. We asked television journalist Gabriela Santini for her analysis of the presidential race. She's a reporter and anchor for Uruguay's Teledose. She joined us via Skype from Montevideo. Uh, when the ex-president Tavares Vázquez confirmed that he will run for the office again, he became quickly the favorite in the polls. Um, Tabaré Vázquez took office in 2005, and he is part of the ruling, uh, the ruling Frente Amplio, which has been in the power for almost a decade. He was also the, left, the first left politician in becoming president. But now surveys are saying that the Frente Amplio will probably lose legislative majorities uh, that, that has won in the last two uh, previous elections, and it is almost sure that there will be a second round because neither of the candidates will obtain the majority. The first run will uh, be on 26th of October, and uh, there are, of course, other candidates. Um, but which are, or who are the other candidates? Um, you have in Uruguay the Partido Nacional and the Partido Colorado, and both of them have two sons of ex-president running for the office, Luis Lacalle Pou Pedro, and, Pedro, and Pedro Bordaberry. These parties are usually known as traditional parties because they were the main parties until the 70s and are considered the right or the center right. There is also a small um, partido, there's, there's also a small party called Partido Independiente, who, which is a center left party born from a small spilt of the Frente Amplio, which has a small percent of the voters, but could be crucial in these highly competitive elections. But what happened? Why, what, what, what was going on in these uh, few months? Um, and for Uruguayans, the surprises began in June when we have the primary elections, as in the USA, as in USA, 
where people select presidential candidates in each party. And then, against the prediction of almost every poll, Luis Lacalle Pou won the Partido Nacional primary election, defeating his opponent for almost 10%. And so, Lacalle Pou is the new element, the novelty of this election, not only because this was his first presidential nomination, but also because he's young for the Uruguayan um, standards. Uh, Luis Lacalle Pou is 41, and for instance, if, if Tabare Vázquez wins the, these elections, he will be taking office with 75 years old, and that's pretty common in Uruguay. Although Lacalle Pou is um, the son of the ex-president Luis Lacalle, he tries all the time during his campaign to differentiate from his father and to, to choose like different people from his team, different people from his father. So in certain way, he symbolized uh, renovation. And uh, he, he also made like an original campaign. Why? Because his slogan was, is something like um, in a positive way. Um, he tries to avoid confrontation, he recognized the achievement of the left government, and he also appointed, for instance, um, as an economy secretary, a woman who worked in the secretary of economy of the last two governments. So he is really new for our, for our um, political scenario all these things that he is doing like in a different way, avoiding confrontation and that kind of things. And now what, are, what polls are saying is that the real fight in this first run will be between Luis Lacalle Pou and Tabari Vázquez. If you see the last polls, they are saying that Frente Amplio has between 39 and 41 of the votes. Partido Nacional have among, among 30 to 32, and Partido Colorado, uh, it's among 30, 13% and 15% of the voters. So um, the thing is that if you add up all the opposition, it has around 10, it has around like 11% uh, more than the ruling Frente Amplio. So even though Tabare Vázquez could win the first round, there would be a second one, and the outcome on, of the second one uh, is uncertain. That's what analysts are saying. I think we should mention for our mm -hmm. listeners who don't follow Uruguay that the Frente Amplio, sometimes called in English the Broad Front, is yes, the sorry. ruling party and, and has been the ruling party for 10 years. But I, yes. I wonder so much about um, this particular election. You have a former president and President Vasquez running again because there's no direct re-election in Uruguay. Um, yes. You have the sons of two previous presidents also <laughs> running, and those are the leading candidates. Is, mm -hmm. is that a bit of a shift more toward elite politics in Uruguay compared to what you have now, which is a, a president who is a former guerrilla fighter? Uh, is it a change? Definitely. Um, because Luis Lacalle Pou and Pedro Bordaberry come from uh, families that, from families that are in politics uh, usually, uh, and Tabaré Vázquez is running 
for a second time. Uh, but I think that the that the change or the real change or the, the you know like the, the exception was Mujica because they were another ex-president who ran for office in different periods of uh, history. So maybe I think that the exception was Mujica. So Pepe Mujica can't run for re-election, and as you mentioned, um, uh, the age of the particular politicians from the Frente Amplio, that too may, may be a reason why he would, would not come back as president as Vasquez is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to wait for a period outside the government in order to, to, to be re-elected. So I don't know, but if, if you think that uh, Mojica is more than 70 and he have to wait for a period outside the government, I think there is no chance that he can run again. But the thing... But he's that, very popular. Yes, he is, of course. I think he has like a, um, 52% of popularity. I mean, he, he's really popular and his people are not, not, not only in Uruguay, but also in, in other parts of the world. President Vasquez is known for his push for the strictest tobacco laws in the world. Um, He has a strong record on poverty reduction and education, um, moving uh, a large percentage of the Uruguayan populace out of poverty and into the middle class, or at least the lower middle class. So Mm -hmm. are economics and pocketbook issues what what the campaign is about? What are the issues in Mm -hmm. this campaign? Uh, to be honest, economics is not the big uh, issue right now um, because um, things are going well in this area. So, uh, as, as, as I told you, for instance, the um, opposition candidate, Luis Lacache Poe, uh, has appointed um, as his economy secretary um, um, a woman who worked for the last government, for the left so there, there are no uh, big difference in the economics in every in every um, in every p- party. I think I think almost uh, every party thinks similar in this area. The big issues in Uruguay right now, and polls are showing that, is the growing insecurity. For instance, um, we also vote in, in October for a referendum. Uh, to lower the age of criminal responsibility in the country from 18 to 16. Uh, because growing insecurity is, is the main fro- problem for Uruguayans, according to the polls, and has been one of the greatest criticisms uh, for Mujica government. This uh, proposal law says that courts could try anyone aged 16 or older as an adult for um, imported crimes like homicide, assault, violent burglary, extortion, abduction, rape, I don't know, among others. So this is a, a thing that Uruguayans have to decide on 26th of October, even though the outcome is still uncertain. And the other uh, main issue maybe is uh, education. Uh, we have um, uh, poor results in um, tests that are international that, that are taken for a lot of countries and there are uh, certain uh, criticism, criticism uh, in this area also. But I don't think economy is, is, is a big issue. So you mentioned crime. When we think about the crime that plagues much of 
Latin America, we don't usually put Uruguay on the list of problem <laughs> countries. Mm -hmm. But crime has been growing there. Drug crime? Police are saying that there are a lot of homicides that are related to narcotraffic. But I think that in population, um, that I think that people are not so worried about that type of crime. I think they are more worried about they can, they can leave their house. Thank you so much, Gabriela Santini of Uruguay's Teledose, joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from Montevideo, Uruguay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week for our look at presidential politics in South America. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes and Facebook. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Of note, some audio material this week was provided by the Peruvian website Utero through a Creative Commons licensing agreement. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and associate producer Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support from Webster University and through the support of Link TV. This program is copyright 2014, Los Rocas Productions. The preceding program was brought to you with the support of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University.